You're listening to the Eastside Church Sermon Podcast Series. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, inclusive, and justice-oriented. We are thrilled that you found our podcast, and if you'd like to learn more about our community, visit our website at eastsideatl.org. Well, if you were not with us last Sunday, you know by now that we have come to the second Sunday in the holy season of Advent. And last Sunday, we looked at the, the reading from the lectionary that, that aligns with the epistle readings, and we looked at a, a piece of scripture written from the Apostle Paul to the ancient community of, of the Thessalonians. And we talked about the fact that Paul, in line with the spirit of Advent, had within him this deep drive and yearning and desire to be with, to to physically be with the people in the church in Thessalonica. And ultimately, Paul ends up sending his mentee, Timothy, to go on his behalf to serve as a proxy because Paul cannot go for reasons that remain, um, that are not revealed to us in the text itself. But ultimately, he sends Timothy on his behalf with with these letters that he has written for this community. And this morning, we come yet again to the epistle reading in the lectionary. And again, the author of the, the writing is Paul. And again, he's writing to an ancient Christian community for whom he longs to be with, he longs to to see and to speak with in person, but for whom he has had a time of separation and has not been able to go to be with them. And as, as we know more broadly about the, the, the book of Philippians, which is where the reading comes from, Paul is under imperial guard as he's writing this letter, which means that he's in some form of house arrest and cannot physically go to be with the Philippian church, so he writes them the letter that we this morning will read from. So friends, for those in the room, I invite you as the sirens pass to stand and as you're able. And for those who are connecting with us digitally, I invite you to embrace a posture that allows you bodily to receive the living word of God for us today. Paul writes, from chapter one of Philippians, beginning in verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our maker and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you sharing God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ 
Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may overflow and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that on the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, on this morning as we have gathered in your name physically and spread across this world through technology, I ask that your Holy Spirit, the same spirit that met your people at Pentecost and moved the mission and the work of the Christ forward in this world, that your spirit, God, would meet us in this time, connect our hearts and our minds across time and across space. And God, I ask that as I preach the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of our hearts would indeed be found right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock and our redeemer. All of this we ask in the name of the Christ. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. So I had a new experience this, this past week. Elizabeth, my wife, took the kids to, to visit with family. I had obligations here in Atlanta. I had to stay back. So in the evenings before bedtime, as, as they do whenever we're apart, they would, they would call me to talk to me before they go to sleep. You all know that basic routine in some form or fashion. But my kids, they... They won't settle for a voice call. It's, it's always FaceTime, so, which, is, which is fine, which is great, except for the place that they stay in my, my our relative's uh, basement. They've always got the lights out by the time they call. So all I get is a black screen, but they get me, I guess, which is nice for them. But This time, because this is the first time this has happened since we got our newest family member, our dog Juno, they wanted to see my face for about five seconds, and then immediately all three of them individually had to see Juno. Which again, it's fine. It was a little annoying a couple of times because I was already sort of like lounging in bed and was comfortable and had to get up out of bed and wake the dog and try to get the dog to look into the screen and it was a whole thing. But what's interesting, at least from my perspective, as I did this night overnight, was that, you know, Juno had no interest in looking at the like little screen of my iPhone and trying to see the dark silhouette of one of my children's faces. But... Juno did perk up when she would hear the voice of each child through the speaker. But she wouldn't look at the phone, she would look to the door and kind of look more towards where she would normally expect them to come in. But then when the next thing that Juno expected to happen didn't happen, she would lose interest. And what, it, what occurred to me by the second night is I'm like, y'all, She hears your voices, and she's intrigued by that, and she's waiting, and she's not getting your smell, right? Because if you've done any study on dogs' noses, those canines' schnozzes are so powerful, they're like, legitimately, they're they're wildly powerful. 
the way they can, the way they can smell and can, I mean, there's been, they're, they're trying to train dogs to like be able to smell cancer on patients. And there's been trials of them trying to be able to smell the coronavirus on people. Like it's wild what, what dogs' noses can do. So yeah, so Juno hears the sound but when the, 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 the nose doesn't reach the scent of them probably approaching our drafty front door, she goes on about her business, or at that time of night, most likely goes back to sleep. And I've been thinking just a lot about this experience that, that we've had with Juno and FaceTime, especially around and related to how our culture more widely in the last year and a half or whatever, We've had to really lean into this technology that was already there, Zoom and, and video conferencing technology, but we've had to use it at levels that most of us prior to the pandemic never dreamed we would need to use it, or at least not until like 2050 or something, right? But if you didn't have it downloaded on your desktop or it updated properly, most of you probably do now. And and it's a, it's a conversation sort of about technology, but it's more, more about like how we're communicating and how technology is impacting the way we're relating in, in and with one another. And the smell thing probably never would have occurred to me as, as I interact with Zoom. But watching my dog, I was like, yeah, that's something that's missing for Juno. Because while these technologies are profound and, and amazing and have made life in many ways bearable, at least more bearable than it otherwise may have been during this pandemic, they also have major shortfalls and major misses, if you will. And I was thinking about Paul again in our text this morning as he's still writing letters. He, he was writing letters last week and he's again writing this morning. And again, we find him unable to travel to be with this church community that he loves, so he, finding himself in house arrest, has finally settled down and acknowledged the fact that maybe a well-written letter is better than nothing, right? So what does Paul do? And, and we often don't think about letter writing as technology, but it is, it's technology. Paul's using the technology that's available to him to do what he can to communicate with the people he loves. So he writes this, this letter, uh, this letter we know as Philippians, and it's remarkable to think about the fact that Paul's hardships that caused him time and time again to not be able to go be with the people he wanted to be with when he wanted to be with them. And remember, Paul's a Roman citizen, so he's a person of, of importance and of power in this ancient world. But he's so often kept from being with who he wants to be with when he wants to be with them. So he keeps writing letters. And because of that, most of our, the majority of our New Testament books are actually letters penned from the Apostle Paul to these various ancient church communities that he was not allowed, able to physically go to be with. So Paul utilizes technology to the best of his ability and he utilizes it so well that we're still reading their interactions today. The ancient, the ancient patristic church 
fathers and mothers, they, they saw these works, these letters as authoritative, so much so that they put them within a canon and said, these are the church's books that we need to keep reading and keep studying together in community. It's pretty amazing. And what if Paul had just, you know, had a bad attitude every time he got locked up or every time he couldn't go where he wanted to go and said, I am not gonna do anything. I'm just gonna sit here. I'm, if I can't communicate with my people the way that I want to or the way that I feel called to, then forget it. I'm just going to sit and stew. And thankfully, no one has done that during the pandemic, so that's good. A little chuckle's fine. <laughs> We've all done that a little bit during the pandemic, amen? Hopefully not across the board in all ways and in all opportunities, but we've all had our moments. But Paul, he's left us these beautiful interactions with these ancient communities that we can still look at today and learn from and find ways that they still speak to us in our world and in our lives. But Paul would have never said or believed that writing a letter to a church was the same as going. He never would have said that. In fact, he would have said that's absurd. Because Paul is an ancient Jew. And he wasn't just an ancient Jew. If you know the backstory, if you've read the book of Acts, and you know that Paul first was a highly elite, trained religious teacher and leader in the ancient Jewish world. Paul was a Pharisee, and he was not on board with these followers of Jesus, to the point where he was, he'd made a name for himself as becoming like the, the known persecutor of the, the early Jesus movement. This was the guy that was going from town to town, province to province, trying to find where the Jesus people were hanging out so that he could wrangle them up and, and throw them in jail. And... This all comes to a head when Paul oversees the stoning of Stephen, who becomes the first martyr of the early church. And of course, this whole story comes to a head in the story of Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, when Paul encounters the resurrected Christ and undergoes this radical transformation and goes from being the foremost persecutor to being the foremost catalytic supporter of and pusher forward into the world person. Notably, the apostle to the Gentile community to whom Paul felt uniquely called. But even with all that being said, Paul was still a trained Jewish Pharisee. He didn't just dump everything else he knew and, and push it to the side. He tweaked points and he, he moved in ways and places, but he didn't change, in his mind, he didn't change religions. He just accepted the, the fulfillment of his Jewishness in Jesus, which means that Paul would have still held to the commonly held to remarkably robust and in some ways unique understanding of the human body in that ancient first century world. The Jewish people had a, had a really important understanding of the human body because for them, 
It wasn't, human bodies weren't the result of two gods warring and then the carcasses of one of the gods spreading out and then our, our flesh being the flesh of the, the warring gods or whatever. I can't remember the name of the two gods that were fighting in that, in that myth. But for the Jewish people, it starts where? In Genesis 1, with a God who, who has an idea to bring beauty and goodness and truth and order out of the, the chaos of the darkness. And in, in that story, you see sort of the swirling chaos that, that, that was, and then God methodically bringing existence into a more and more beautiful, ordered, sustainable place. Human beings being like the, the capstone of that whole narrative. And because God handcrafts humanity, human beings, the Jewish people held that close. And when it became in, in sort of in vogue to, to speak of like the human body within like certain Greek philosophical groups as the human body's like, you know, it's sort of like the leftovers, the good stuff's the spirit, the pneuma, right? The, the good stuff is like the, what Plato talks about as forms and we gotta escape this messy, earthy creation where things, you know, smell bad and our hands get dirty. But Jews would have said, no, 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 you're missing the point entirely. The point is that we can get our hands dirty and we can smell things. That's precisely the whole point. If God didn't want us to have bodies, we wouldn't have bodies. If God didn't deem it the best way for our existence is to be, then God's pretty intelligent, maybe the most intelligent reality and being of all forever, right? God could have come up with something else, but this is what God came up with, this world, with you and you and you, this humanity, these bodies, these hands, these feet, which means that God really likes that which God has created and values it deeply and values each and every human being deeply. And because God has a robust view of the human body, so did the ancient Jewish people. And so did the early Christian people. Because the entirety of the, the Advent trajectory moving into the Christmas celebration it's about this weird return that happens. Because if, if you look at Genesis, there's the, the part of the poem or narrative where God does what but, but walks and talks with Adam and Eve in the garden, which I think is a wild thing to think about. Think about an embodied, like God, like God embodied in some sense, like side by side walking with me in a garden and just talking to me. Like, that's pretty remarkable to think about. And the whole, the whole sort of directional recapitulation of that first story is that God is about to do it again, right? In Advent, we're anticipating God walking and talking and being embodied with us again. God likes bodies so much that God will actually take on a body so that God can be with us embodied. God 
God values our embodied existence and God recognizes the way in which it's full of wonder. And, and, and I think it's important to hear this, depending especially on where you find yourself this morning. I know our bodies can be really tricky things, but God values your body and the you that it is infused and, and lives with. God loves you, God loves all of you. God deeply values us as we are right now. God doesn't look at us like the certain ancient Greek philosophical groups did where the, the flesh is lower and the spirit is higher, but God looks at us as we are right now and says, no, you're remarkable. You're beautiful. And I love you right now as you are. And Paul would have had this deep and this rich creational view of humanity and the human race and of our bodies, which is important because Paul's, as he's writing a letter, he knows it's, it's, it's just word and it's not word and fleshed. And, and he recognizes that as he's writing these letters and all he can do probably as he's writing them down is prayerfully pray over these words and, and, and pray for the community to whom he's writing and pray that the spirit can bridge the, the chasm between himself and the folks who are gonna open this letter and read it and pray that the spirit of God can like sketch out the images and the feelings and the smells and the ideas that he wants them to experience as they're reading it. And the Holy Spirit has this capacity to, to do this, to fill us, to move us, as we, as we encounter technology. And the Holy Spirit has the capacity to play a great bass line. <laughs> but as we return to Juno, hearing the voices, hearing the words of my three kids, and then wondering, but where's the rest of the package? Right? Where's the rest of it? I hear them. I want to see them and smell them, and I want them to tackle me like they normally do so that I can attack them back. <laughs> and I think that as we've gotten comfortable with technology in different ways and in new ways, that's not all bad. And again, Zoom has been really a beautiful thing, and technology is a beautiful thing, but the reality is, is that we can't, like, we can't smell over Zoom. I mean, you might smell something while you're using Zoom, but it might be your, the fan going out in your computer. <laughs> it might be the smell of burning rubber. Um, hopefully not, but it happens. But the reality is, is that, that Zoom is not the whole thing. <laughs> And Paul's letter's not the whole thing, and even the best written letter can't give you a real hug. And God knows this. And God knows that 
as God communicated with humanity throughout the Old Testament, there came to a point where it's like human beings needed to sit down again and be side by side in stride with God among us, which is what we are leaning into and anticipating yet again this Christmas season. So what do we do today as a community as we're trying to regather and re-embody and encounter the old smells of church and see the new faces among us and again, get comfortable hugging one another people we haven't, probably some people we haven't been in a room with, let alone hugged in over a year and a half. How do we work with our children who are growing up in a world where human bodies aren't just taken for granted, but they're feared? You know, the, 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 the psychological impact that that could have on, on humanity as a whole in the wake of, of this pandemic? How do we teach one another and live in such a way and model for one another that, no, 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 our bodies are good. They're not to be feared. They're to be loved and respected. And the masks, they're about respect. And the vaccines are about respect and cherishing one another. They're not about fearing one another. And church, church is, is important because Christianity is, is from Judaism, and Judaism is a, is a whole embodied form of God worship. It's sight, it's sound, it's smell, it's taste, it's touch. And it's not just a philosophy. Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's not just words. If it were, we wouldn't need Christmas. If Christianity was just words, just ideas, we would not need the incarnation. We would not need God among us. But we all know at the end of the day, we need more than words. We need bodies, we need hugs, we need smells, we need the real thing. And this, my friends, is the real thing. And I don't know how gamma is gonna impact. That's right, gamma, is that it? Omicron, see, I know my whole Greek alphabet, so. <laughs> They're confusing the heck out of me the way they're skipping around different letters. But I don't know how all this is gonna play out. I think it's, it's worthy of our attention, but what I do know is right now we have, have some time in a window, I believe, in this community to be together in, in relatively safe ways as our kids are being vaccinated, as our adults are boostering, and I, and I encourage your friends, like, don't, don't miss this opportunity that you have. And you're here this morning, so again, I'm, I guess I'm kind of preaching to the choir, but like, take that message to somebody that's not here and say like, we don't know how long we're gonna have this safe window to come back and be together in this space. So bring somebody, invite them to come, even if it's for a while we can. And, and may what we, we can do as we pray away this variant and we do everything we can to, to not allow it to, to seep into our world yet again. May we in this season of Advent and Christmas fully live into this, fully be together in mind and spirit and in body. In the name of the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, everyone said, amen. amen.
Can we say amen? <laughs> Thank you. Christmas, a year without any fear. My name is George Howard, and it's a privilege to lead us in prayers of the people today. Sometimes we pray individually, sometimes as a family, and at other times together as a community. Today, we combine our thoughts and prayers into one, and they're not dependent on the technology of the day. For those of you gathered here in person and those of you watching online, let us prepare ourselves and join together in the power of prayer for ourselves, our nation, and our world. As we pray, you will hear me say, Lord, in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. Let us pray. Holy One, we continue into this second week of Advent. We pray that individually and collectively, we might quiet the distractions of the world, that we might hear you and the hope and the peace for ourselves, our church, our nation and world that this season offers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Holy One, we pray for ourselves, our families, and this community of faith. As we wait with anticipation of the birth of the Christ child, we pray that our love may overflow more and more and that through our example, we might be the witness which you and the world needs us to be. Be with us as we struggle with finances and working from home, the continued impact of COVID, racism, local, state, and national politics. Help us to raise our families, live our lives of service, and support one another in this community in ways which reflect the values of love, peace, and justice for all. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, we pray for this nation, its leaders, and all who live within it. We lift up our president, elected officials, farmers and factory workers, musicians and migrants, healthcare workers and homemakers, teachers and toddlers. We remember leaders recently elected and those who will offer their service in the coming months. We pray for those tonight who will go to sleep under the stars and those who will be tucked into their beds. Help us all to embody your love as we respond to one another. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Gracious and most merciful God, we pray for the world and all of her people. We're grateful that we share the celebrations of this season with those who speak languages other than our own. As we draw closer to you, almighty God, we hear more clearly the voices of our brothers and sisters across the world who are suffering. We give thanks for Pope Francis, who said yesterday to the migrants in Cyprus, I see your faces and look into your eyes, eyes that have seen violence and poverty, eyes streaked by too many tears. We extend our thoughts and prayers to those in Cyprus, those feeling gangs and oppression in Honduras, those in South Africa and elsewhere who face a new COVID strain 
without the options of vaccine or medical care. May the world keep its attention on all those who are separated from adequate food, housing, healthcare, education, and safety, and turn their awareness towards an appropriate response. We pray that the message of hope and peace radiating out of our churches across the world might find its way into people's daily lives and transform systems of racism, oppression, and indifference. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us continue in silence as we pray individually and confess where we fall short. Friends, thanks be to God. Amen. We all fall short, but hear the good news. The grace of God goes before us. It surrounds us. We are blessed and forgiven that we might be free from the past and released for the future. In the name of the risen Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. And now, as people forgiven and reconciled with God, extend your arms, reach out to those you're with in this room or in the room where you are at home with the peace of God. And as we extend the peace of God, I invite you to come here and get your communion elements. And if you're at home, to gather a bread and juice that we might continue in communion. Extend the peace, please. Well, friends, I invite you to stand for the benediction. As you go as an Advent people, may you go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you go in the love of our Creator. And may you go in the life-empowering fellowship and energy of God's Spirit. Each day this week, and may you come back to get charged back up, to go back out into the world yet again. Amen? Amen. 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 Go in peace, friends. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to connecting with you soon. If you'd like to experience our full church services, you can find them at youtube.com slash eastsidechurchatl. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing here at Eastside, you can find our giving portal at our website, eastsideatl.org. Be well.